As an industry, we've committed to the ambitious vision of blueberries becoming the world's favorite fruit. But what is that really going to look like in practice? What we proved out is there's a segment of consumers out there that will pay a lot for a really good experience. And this has a lot of knock-on benefits, okay, because it really rewards the breeding programs for bringing forward varieties that has very high flavor. On today's episode, we continue my conversation with Soren Bjorn and how we can elevate the blueberry consumer experience. This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of the Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. It was fantastic to see those of you who attended Spring Forward, whether it was in Tampa or virtually. It is always productive and exciting to have the industry come together, and I'm counting down the days until we can do it again. I have to say, if you haven't heard the blueberry band play together, what a treat that was. Who knew that you could bring blueberry growers together from different states and make such magic happen? I will never forget Art's saxophone solos and seeing our finance chair, George Fritz, take to the dance floor. It was great to see people back together again and really enjoying our time together as an industry. Thank you to John and Rhonda Bennett, Art Galetta, Brittany Lee, Charles Whitley. You guys rocked the house. That was an amazing evening together. Last but not least, I also want to acknowledge the momentum and growth of our program coming out of our meetings last week. The USHBC board approved an amended budget to include an additional $2.5 million to better fund our demand-driving programs. Thanks to the NABC board and the United Blueberry Advisory Committee members, almost $3 million has been raised to help address challenges and go after new opportunities for blueberries. Last week on The Business of Blueberries, you heard part of my interview with the president of Driscoll's of the Americas, Soren Bjorn. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back. It was a great discussion. Take a listen. Uh, But this episode picks up right where we left off in part one. Today, we talk about the consumer experience for blueberries, blueberry genetics, Driscoll's effort in bringing an elevated blueberry experience forward, and so much more. We're going to pick right back up in this conversation where Soren is talking about what it'll take for blueberries to become the world's favorite fruit. It's all about meeting consumers where the consumers want to be, whether they know it or not. Okay, sometimes the consumers don't even know that they want it, right? The the consumers didn't know that they wanted an iPhone before the first one came out, right? But it's sort of anticipating what consumers want and then make sure you deliver that. Some of that is, I think, really obvious. Right. In the end, we're talking about fruits here. You know, fruits naturally exist to uh, have living beings wanting to come and eat it, right? You know, birds eat fruits to pick up the seeds, and right? But the birds don't pick up, you know, sour blueberries. The birds pick up the, the great-tasting blueberries. You can ask any blueberry farmer out there, where do the birds go, right? They, they go to the fields where uh, the berries are overripe, okay, or where do you have the best-tasting varieties? But human beings are attracted to the best tasting fruits as well, right? So 
I think at this stage, the most important thing for the industry is to continue to push the consumer experience up. Our issue today as an industry is much less about availability, right? You know, there's always blueberries available. Sometimes they're more available and therefore cheaper. And other times they're less available. But the periods where they're not so available, you know, a little bit in the spring, and that's all going to get filled in, right? That's, that's enabled a lot of the debate we had internally in the industry was all about. But that's a good thing, you know, is that, that blueberries are always available or always going to be available. Because that means that we will never lose our shelf space, okay, which is incredibly valuable, right? We should never want to give that up once we had gotten it, okay, and now we have it. And so now we are in a very, very good place. But the reality is that the consumer experience, if we're really honest with ourselves as individual companies like Driscoll's or as an industry overall, the reality is the consumer experience is, is uneven, Blueberries are not consistently good, okay? I don't think any of us can say that with a straight face. You know, now there's technology clearly available, right, where you can ensure that consistency inside a clamshell. I will take that example from, uh, let's take one of the other berries, that's one of the berries that tends to be the most extreme offender in this is blackberries, right? You can have the most beautiful looking blackberry, and when you eat it, you swear you will never, ever eat a blackberry again in your life, Right? But we still have some of those things going on in the blueberry industry, right? We still have varieties hanging around that has some justification for being, okay? And not the least of which is that it's, the farmer's already paid for and it still throws off a little bit of cash. So we just keep putting it out there as an industry. But the reality is that we have to remember that that clamshell, when it gets out to the consumer, if that is not a good experience, then it's less likely the consumer comes back. Whereas if it's a good experience, that's the single best marketing job we can do. There's no marketing dollars that can offset that, right? That can outperform that. That is the best marketing dollars, right? My boss, Miles Ryder, always says, it's the job of the clamshell that we have already sold to sell the next one. And so we already made the sale, but it's the job of that clamshell to make sure that that customer and that consumer comes back and wants more. And then we've got to realize that the target is a target that constantly is moving up. Because the bar for a great tasting blueberry today is very different than it was just five years ago. And so, you know, I think, I know you're going to talk a little bit about flavor down in Tampa. And this is a, a very, very important topic of conversation. If we, at, we insert intern in Driscoll's today, draw, we, we draw these supply curves that we call them the delight curves. It's basically, we, we take the volume by variety and then we multiply it by the the consumer experience for that variety at that time of year to see what kind of experience are we going to deliver. One of the things that's happening is that those delight curves, okay, the experience consumers going to have, are dramatically shifting over time. And that's driven by the huge genetic transformation in the southern high bush. Lots of breeding programs, a lot of really good varieties coming out. Pretty fast cash flow, right? You get commercial production within you know, 12 months if you plan at the right time of year. And those varieties are not, they're not planned to stay in for more than eight years, right? A grower plants them thinking that that variety is going to get pulled out in eight years and a new variety is coming in. So you got lots of breeding programs, really good cash flow being generated, and you got this huge genetic turnover. And so what's happening is that actually the times of year when we used to have arguably some of the worst blueberry experiences, and I'm thinking 
late season Elliots from Chile arriving in March or early, forgot a bit early April, okay, or or stored fruit that's been hanging around somewhere in the Pacific Northwest for six, seven, eight weeks. Those were really, really bad experiences on the consumer side. They were always high prices, but they were really bad experiences. Those things are rapidly getting replaced by some of the best eating blueberries in the world. But what's happening is that the very traditional blueberry producing regions, primarily in Northern High Bush, that used to have a really, really good reputation, are going to end up in the next five years having the worst flavor. They may still have good inherent quality, you know, like they got the shelf life, the fruit still looks pretty good, it's a reasonable size, it's probably a little bit on a small end of it compared to where things are heading. But the flavor is really subpar compared to the experience at the rest of the year. And the unfortunate thing for that part of the industry is that the Northern Highbush breeding programs are very slow. There aren't that many of them because they're slow. And so you take a region like, let's say, the Pacific Northwest that really produces some of the best inherent quality blueberries. In five years, they're likely to have the worst tasting blueberries. But that's the biggest challenge ahead of us. You know? Keep improving the consumer experience and drive more demand that way. That's the best marketing we can do. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that opportunity and, and, and certainly as it relates to Driscoll specifically. But before we dive into more specifics, let's take a quick break for our crop report. We're nearing the transition from our southern hemisphere up here to the north where we've got Florida kicking off their harvest. And I know many of you have been anticipating hearing weekly updates from our colleagues in South America through our off-season. So here, once again, is your Blueberry Crop Report. It's time now for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry-growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Ken Patterson in Florida and Mario Ramirez in Mexico. This was recorded on March 9th, 2022. Well, the Florida harvest is on, and this is the first crop report for the 2022 season. The weather has been a roller coaster for the past several weeks with periods of cool weather and then above average temperatures, even close to 90 degrees in the afternoons. A very fast moving cold front is scheduled to pass through here on Sunday with freezing temperatures and wind, possibly as far down as central Florida. So that may change everything here in, in Florida. That, along with three days of forecasted rain, will slow production down temporarily. The southern and central regions have been picking for about a month now and will ramp up considerably starting the middle of next week. The growers in north central Florida have just started or will be starting early midweek next week. Avanti, Kestrel, Chickadee, and Arcadia are the main contributors right now. Growers are reporting that the crop appears to be at least a week ahead of normal. Labor does not seem to be an issue at this point, as most growers are using H-2A labor. The USDA is not reporting any movement out of Florida yet, but I'm guessing it's approaching a million pounds at this point. So that concludes my first of many crop reports for this season. Hi, here Mary with the 2022 six-week report for the Mexican blueberries. This week we've seen important growth in the volumes, with a difference of around 44% respect to the volume reported three weeks ago when we are producing very low volumes. This week 
we exported 4,300,000 pounds of fresh blueberries to the North American market. And for all the season, we have exported 52,500,000 pounds to all the world. Respecting to the frozen blueberries, they are showing interesting growth too, with a volume near of 200,000 pounds exported this year. Even with these volumes, Mexico represents only 2% of the frozen blueberry imports to the United States. The weather is great to the produce in Mexico and there's no affectations reported. Here all in my report. See you next week. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much to our busy growers and colleagues who take the time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our Data and Insight Center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry. We've added a lot more features to this dashboard, including a USDA shipping price and movement, retail category performance, Nielsen monthly retail sales reports, and much, much more. So make sure you check out ushbc.org forward slash data. So let's go back to our featured conversation with Soren. Soren, the one thing we talked, uh, we're just talking about is a little bit about the importance of flavor. Obviously, you know, I've got a couple follow-up questions with you on who decides what good tastes like from your perspective, uh, knowing just how long it takes to bring these things to market. I think that's always been a challenge for our industry to kind of appreciate, understand, but you're right. In Tampa, we're actually going to have a conversation about flavor so the industry can just be uh, discussing what does it mean? What are these benchmarks we're actually shooting for or looking at? But, but Driscoll's in particular has an entire line, the sweetest batch branded by Driscoll's in particular with blueberries. And you've been in the market for a while now. And I wondered if you could just talk specifically about that project and where that fits into this vision of where blueberries are headed. It has sort of been an internal frustration for a while that some of our very best varieties really across all, all the berries, never really made it to the consumers. It's driven by the simple correlation between, you know, high sugar content tends to suppress overall productivity. Whatever plant, blueberry plant, strawberry plant, senses energy to producing sugars instead of producing solid mass, and therefore it produces, you know, fewer berries, but more sugar. Okay, that, that's a highly, highly correlated relationship. So you end up with these varieties that are just taste amazing, but they may only be yielding 60, 65% of what is the commercial benchmark for yield. So th this is not a new discovery. And we had actually had a lot of success in Northern Europe with a couple of strawberry varieties that got sold in a, got created as a super premium strawberry category in Northern Europe. And we really felt like we could take this concept to the US. We wanted to do it with strawberry first. Okay, we, we hadn't quite been able to crack that code yet. We're getting much closer now. But when we, when we were able to license this Arana blueberry variety from Costa, we really knew we had something that was really special. Interestingly, we decided to orient most of that production against the sort of fall into early winter in central Mexico, where we really got a great expression of the quality, but we also got really low yield. There was no way we could commercially market these varieties up against uh, you know, our regular label and the general market. And so we said, you know, let's go for it, right? And um, <laughs> wait a second, you, you couldn't compete with yourself and then, then let's go for it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we really we just couldn't get growers to plant this variety if we we're going to put it in our regular label because we could obviously more or less predict what we thought the price was going to be. So we said, hey, if we would commit to trying to market this differently, 
And we think maybe we can get a 30 to 35% premium over the general market. Could you, the growers, would you be willing to do this? And so we actually got you know, several hundred hectares planted of this. And we got it out there. The demand was far exceeded our projections. And it would be fair to say that we missed the mark on the 30 to 35% premium. In fact, it was significantly higher than that. So that turned out to be an okay business. But guess what? In the meantime, what's happened is that Peru has come onto the scene in the same time period. And so I think this is a good example of where you have to be flexible and, and adaptable. Okay. And so now a lot of that production, we actually haven't just shifted out of the fall in Mexico into the spring in Mexico to get out of competing directly with Peru, which also now has some really excellent varieties coming out. But what we proved out is there's a segment of consumers out there that will pay a lot for a really good experience. And this has a lot of knock-on benefits, okay, because it really rewards the breeding programs for bringing forward varieties that has very high flavor. So we are letting genetics hang around in our genetic pipeline that's highly flavored, which that over time will actually spill into the regular lineup, what we call our yellow label, because you just have more high-flavored genetics in the whole gene pool. And it's attracting a segment of consumers that is incredibly valuable because you are, this is now naturally at the highest end of the market. And you want those consumers to be loyal, right, to this category. And so we are now doing it in all four berries. It can be harder in some of the berries. But the other thing is that this idea that the flavor experience is relative is a very, very important notion, right? Because when our yellow label is moving up and it gets really close to the Swedish batch, we have to stop putting that variety in the Swedish batch and, and roll it into the yellow label or get rid of the variety because now the bar has raised so much. And so that is also happening. We're definitely seeing that in our Blackberry category that uh, varieties that started in Swedish batch only stayed in there for a couple of years. And then the, our whole offer just caught up with the Swedish batch. When you look at that analysis within your own company, but you think about it from an industry perspective, what are the lessons there? Because, you know, you could and maybe learn from other commodities who have gone down this flavor profile conversation, you know, as, a, as an industry competitively, only to find themselves, you know, in some ways causing a bit of a mess in the market for what was, in your case, the yellow label. And in the industry's case, it's what was like the red delicious or, you know, I'm, I'm just throwing out an industry example of, of where flavor takes you over time. So the pitfalls and the opportunity of this as an industry going forward, what concerns, lessons from other industries or thoughts you have about how to manage this forward? Well, I think one of the tricky parts in, in the blueberry industry, and I think this is, again, is a bit of a um, challenge for the Noir and Highbush, is when you're making the commitment, you're making a long-term commitment, right? In the Southern Highbush, you know, it's a little bit easier if you, if you get it wrong, you know. Hopefully your shipper will keep shipping your fruit for five or six years, something like that, and then maybe you agree on pulling the variety out a little bit early. And then they have a new variety for you that can help you, or however that works in, in your respective setups. That's tougher in the Northern high bush, right, because you really need that variety in there 12, 15 years, ideally, right? And, and it's hard to look that far ahead. But what is not difficult to predict is that the consumers will respond. And so with a willingness to pay a higher price. And there's not a great likelihood, for example, in Northern Highbush, that you're also just going to flood the market overnight, okay, with 
way too many good tasting blueberries. Okay, that's not going to happen. Okay, and I think this is one of the areas where data becomes extremely important, right? Because we sort of lack transparency in the industry, right? If I were to ask you today, what's the total acreage in Peru? You can say, I, I got that data. What's the total volume in Peru? Yeah, I got that data. Now, okay, Casey, here's what I want to know. is I want to know how much of that is conventional, how much of that is organic, how much of that is in a premium variety, how much of that is in a, let's say, a competitive variety, and how much of that is in really a variety that probably is no longer that competitive. Let's say, you know, like, uh, you know, Arana at one end and Biloxi at the other end, and, you know, I'll pick somebody else's right, like something like Kira, you know, from, from the Costa program in the middle, okay? And so... You, you know, as an investor into the industry, which of course all our growers are, there's sort of a lack of visibility to what's going on. So you don't really know what you're investing up against. And I'm not saying that the, the premium segment is for everybody. And I think that's especially true in blueberries, okay, where you can make pretty good money on producing a, you know, mid-tier quality variety, but then be super efficient and, and go on processing and making that part of your deal. And, and that's your setup, okay? And, and that's your business. Whereas if you are in, you know, if you're one of our growers that's mostly producing towards the Swedish batch, I mean, you're not worried about what the processing price is. You don't even look at it. Like you could just absolutely care less, right? Everything you do is set up from planting and pruning and everything to deliver the best quality blueberry in the other end, right? And that's how you're going to get rewarded. And the rest of it doesn't matter, right? But so there's different ways to do it for sure. But I don't think you have to be worried about the demand is there. Obviously, if you are not inside a proprietary program like Driscoll's, you know, you, you need to try to gather enough intelligence to figure out what's out there and what are you up against. Because you wouldn't want to plant four or 500 acres of what you think is the greatest tasting blueberry variety in, you know, eastern Washington only to find out that there's two other people out there with better tasting varieties. Okay, I mean, that's, that's going to be tough. You know, you don't want to be number three. You know, <laughs> that's, uh, you're not going to get much of a premium. You know, price is a big conversation, in particularly in a region like the Pacific Northwest, but in other regions as well. There's no doubt in my mind is the way to move the price up from $2 a pound to 3 that the way you get there is through flavor. It's not through other means. I don't think we could give you a big enough marketing budget that you can move the price from 2 to 3 unless we improve the product. And I think what you were talking about is the, uh, the correlation of helping the industry understand that. And uh, you, you brought up something that was really interesting about the way flavor is going to drive that and how you could collect data from, obviously, you, you can see a lot of data right now in Chile and Peru, uh, in particular, keeping track of both the acreage. But you also mentioned, you know, keeping track of variety types. And I, I think this might be a good segue to talk a little bit about the MOU project with the task force coming out of a 201 investigation and the conclusion of that, you know, you were one of a number of importers of record who led a conversation about, you know, what, what investments do we, do we need to make? And one of those priority areas, in addition to marketing, of course, was data. And so, you know, we talk about data in the, our website every week on this podcast, just encouraging people to go to our website to learn more about the blueberry business with the data we have today. But what really you're setting forth, and I think you're, you know, foreshadowing it here is, is the need for improved, even much more improved data from the blueberry industry. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on that conversation from the task force and how you see that, you know, becoming a responsibility of USHBC going forward from here. Yeah, I have 
long, long time ago written off the notion that if, if we can keep all our data private, we can somehow outcompete everybody else, okay? And that's a better way of operating than the opposite, okay? It's saying we got to make the data that's appropriate, you know, public, okay? And then everybody can see it as long as everybody else is doing the same thing. And then we compete on the things that really matter. If you're a marketeer and you have some visibility into what the overall industry volume is going to going to be in the coming weeks, you have a much better chance of optimizing the price returns as opposed to sort of be guessing or trying to outsmart the market, okay? In which case, you are very likely to be wrong. You communicate a too high, high a price and you're not getting any orders, or you communicate a too low a price and you're getting lots of orders and you run out of fruit, right? That's what all of us marketeers deal with every single week, right? And so you look in a commodity, like they say, in strawberries, and I would just encourage your members that if, 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 they, if they don't believe this, they haven't seen this, they, they ought to just go into the California Strawberry Commission website, and there's all the data. There's the pick sheet that comes out every week. There's the acreage report that comes out, you know, a couple times a year. It gets updated. It gets refined. You can see all the varieties that are grown by growing district in California, right? You know, the proprietary varieties are listed, you know, sort of in, in one bucket you know, together. And so you have a pretty good idea about what you're up against. They're doing their own forecast, right? We are all as marketers doing our forecast and we're saying, okay, this is what we think the market is going to do in terms of overall supply. This is the demand that we are sensing out there. And therefore, this is the price we're going to communicate to our customers. We're not always right on that, that this is art, okay? It's more like magic, okay, if you have no data. You're really running a professional business where you have data that's backing up what you're communicating out. So you can give the market confidence in what we're doing. Same thing, if you're an investor in this industry, which you know, we all are at, at, at some level, if the industry has a high degree of transparency, then there's less uncertainty about what you're investing into. You're still investing into the future. But at least you know what the starting point is. And that is from an investor standpoint, a much, much better place to be, right? You know, the one thing that investors don't like is a high degree of uncertainty. Then they just expect higher and higher returns. And so I think what we want is we want to take some of that uncertainty out so that the investors, in fact, don't need as high a return to keep growing the business. I mean, this is an area where it's sort of ironic that the foreign production locations like Peru and Chile in particular have excellent data, and in domestic industry, which is the origin of the whole industry, has quite poor data. And um, we need to close that gap, okay? That's, this is really to all of our benefits, okay? And, you know, we, we receive, we, we on, whether it's with the California Story Review Commission or whether it's with the USDA, right, we are basically sending our data exactly as is every single week. The exact volume, the exact pricing, because... So I said, there's not really any benefit in trying to sort of compete against the unknown because I would not trust any marketer that thinks that they can outsmart everybody else, okay, including my own team, okay? I wouldn't trust them either. But the key is that everybody's got to play. You know, you can't have a third sitting on the sideline saying, well, we're just going to let those guys, you know, do all the reporting, okay, and we'll sit on the sideline and then try to benefit from that and then not share our data, okay? That won't work. We, we got to get to a... You got to get to a mass, okay, of participation. You don't need to get 100%, okay, but I don't know what the tipping point is, okay, but it, it's a pretty high number. 
And um, the California Shorebird Commission is a, is a very high number. It's not 100%, but it's very high. We're going to take a quick break here for our marketing boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here is USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Jennifer Sparks. Thanks, Casey. Last week in Tampa for USHBC's Spring Forward Conference, we were lucky to take our attendees on some blueberry tours. One of those tours was of Wish Farms headquarters, where we saw the fruit being packaged. To our delight, right there on the conveyor belt were 18-ounce packs being sealed with enclosure tape carrying the Grababoosta Blue logo right along with the Wish Farms logo. You see, Grababoosta Blue is USHBC's strategic positioning for blueberries and is meant to complement not compete with blueberry industry brands. Thanks to Wish Farms, Costco customers will now have that extra call to action to grab that boost of blue, and those packs will surely catch the eyes of shoppers. So how are you engaging with Grab a Boost of Blue? Here are four key ways. One, use the messaging. Encourage your customers to grab a Boost of Blue through content on your website, in social media captions, in newsletters, and other communications. Two, use USHBC's ready-to-use tools. We offer social graphics, videos, and digital advertising all ready for download. Just go to ushbc.org slash boostofblue. Three, if you aren't already, get licensed at ushbc.org slash license. This gives you the opportunity to use the Grab a Boost of Blue logo in your own custom materials to give consumers that final call to action. And four, like Wish Farms and Sunbell and others, use the logo on your packaging, either directly on the clamshell or on the enclosure tape to help your product get noticed in store. Grab a Boosta Blue is there for you to use as you see fit for your brand to motivate the consumer to choose and love your blueberries. This has been your marketing boost. Thank you for your partnership as together we inspire the world to grab a Boosta Blue. Casey, back to you. Thanks, Jenny. Now back to today's episode with Soren. Uh, kind of as we wrap up here, Soren, the last time you were on the show, you mentioned projections indicating your your thoughts of where blueberries are going to be going over the next five, 10 years. And I think if I recall, you were talking about how it might eventually pass strawberries. So I thought, you know, are we? I wanted to just kind of revisit that prediction from your perspective on where blueberries are headed and how it's changed at all from your perspective. Well, probably the only thing that's changed about that projection is that strawberries has had two really good years the last two years. So strawberries definitely benefited from the pandemic, probably benefited the most, in fact. And uh, so I'll probably say there's a little bit more optimism in the strawberry industry today than there was two years ago. But that's a great, that's, it's, it makes for a great race, okay? And yeah, I think that, that's good, you know, that um, consumers have alternatives. And I think in some ways, one berry can push the other one. And we have nice, healthy competition internally in Driscoll's between, we call them our, our product managers, the ones that are in charge of each of the four berries, okay? And they compete on many, many different levels, not just size, okay? Right now, there's a, this huge competition as to who can improve the flavor experience the most among the four berries, right? And, um, and that's great, okay? And, uh, and so, you know, when they, they find the things where they're handicapped, okay, they really go after it. So, no, I'm very optimistic about um, the berry category overall, and especially blueberries. You know, clearly the blueberry industry is attracting a lot of money from the outside. And some of that is good. And some of that, I think we got to, you know, watch out for a little bit, right? You know, I mean, you know, in the end, you are 
at the core dealing with an industry that's made up by family farmers and stuff like that, that should all have a place here, you know, in the future. Okay. And I think sometimes when outside investment money comes into an industry, they do not have the loyalty to necessarily hang around. Okay. If the margins get squeezed. And um, I think we've got to be a little bit cautious with some of that. So the growth has to be thoughtful, right? But that's, that's all that comes back to some of the things we talked about is the support the demand with marketing. Let's get more data so we are all more informed about where the industry is at and where it's likely to be heading. But it's going to continue to grow very significantly in the next five plus years for sure. I have no doubt about that. And um, everybody has to look at where competition is coming from, right? You know, but sometimes it's not exactly where you think it is, right? I think the today the biggest threat of Peru is I don't think to the U.S. growers is to the Chilean growers, okay. And it was the Argentinians growers beforehand, okay? And to the Mexican growers that were growing in, in the fall who are now going into the spring, okay? Then they're going to knock on, you know, maybe uh, other geographies that were not used to competing against Mexico. So, but that's the industry evolving, okay? And as long as we continue to improve the consumer experience, we're going to be in really, really good shape. Well, I have to say, I always appreciate the opportunity to sit down with Soren and just kind of pick his brain as he sees the world from a perspective like his, just kind of literally looking at the world as that marketplace that we face as a commodity competing with other commodities and other products. Um, but really some good insights today, I think for us to take away some of those takeaways for me, we're certainly talking through flavor. I, you know, by the time people hear this, we, we will probably have already had our, our session on flavor in Tampa, but that concept of them measuring success through those delight curves as a company was something that struck me as being important for our industry. And again, just kind of tying that back to why it's important that we look at an improved data enhancing experience for our industry. You know, not sure exactly where our program will go, but just really seeing the vision from a company like Driscoll's as they measure success against themselves. And those delight curves that Soren was describing as being something, something just to think about, you know, when is it that consumers are enjoying blueberries the most uh, throughout the year? And finally, I think, you know, one of the clear takeaways for me, and I hopefully for all of you listening is that spirit of collaboration that comes through, you know, not obviously to the dollars that Driscoll's is committed to the MOU program and the project there, but, you know, as a company willing to provide the data, some of the insights we've had today, you know, the transparency that Soren believes really will help elevate our game as an industry. And so uh, it's something we're shooting for as, as a representative uh, commodity board for blueberries, something that, you know, we'll be talking a lot more about as we move forward from here uh, in terms of our data pro project in particular, but just more of that for going forward in the blueberry category is going to be really important to our success. And so I just appreciate his example, the information he's obviously willing to share that he does share as a company for us in the blueberry category. So again, great episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the business of blueberries. Mm -hmm.